Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, the 22nd of June. I'm Tom Tilly. And on today's briefing, we take you to Mars, where China is quickly achieving things that took the US decades. If somebody can hand you the blueprints to a rover, but then being able to successfully build a rover and execute that mission perfectly the first time, that's still an incredible achievement. What is China doing in space? That is our briefing. Uh, first, Annika is here with today's big news stories. He did it. Barnaby Joyce is Australia's new Deputy Prime Minister and will be sworn in today after regaining the National Party leadership. Yeah, this is huge news. Um, Joyce was previously the Nationals leader and Deputy Prime Minister until he stepped down in 2018 after it was revealed he was having an affair with a staffer and facing sexual harassment allegations, which he denies. And now, three years later, he's back. I acknowledge my faults and... I resigned, as I should and I did. I've spent uh, three years on the backbench and I hope I come back a better person. He promised there he's learned from his mistakes after defeating former leader Michael McCormack in a vote for the leadership in a meeting of the National Party yesterday morning. Yeah, so we were speculating about this at this time yesterday, Annika, and it's happened. Uh, You've been on the phones again to Nationals MPs. What have you found out? How close was this vote? Yeah, it's incredible. Look, he needs just 11 votes because there's 20-odd people in the party room and you only need to win by one. It looks like it was that close. And I do have a list, roughly, of who voted for who. And it's almost interestingly split on geography. So the previous member, Michael McCormack, was from Wagga Wagga. And if you look at MPs sort of around his area and to the south in Victoria, uh, they voted for Michael McCormack. If you look at the ones from the mining states, they all voted mostly, with a few exceptions, for Barnaby Joyce, which tells you what this is about. It really does come down to uh, Scott Morrison's changed nature and changed expectations on climate change. We all know he's sort of slightly trying to edge the party towards net zero emissions. The National Party are angry about this. Well, the ones from the mining states are. They want more pushback against the Prime Minister, and that's why they've voted this way. So it was a very, very tight uh, race. It it did come down to one vote. And there's also a thought that it came down to succession planning, meaning Barnaby Joyce said at the next election, he would hand over to David Littleproud, who's considered the next leader. But as we all know, Tom, we've seen these promises before in politics, and it's one thing to say it, but when you're getting paid $430,000 for the top job and only $200,000 hmm. as a backbencher, it's pretty hard to give up that salary. Well, when you've got two young kids in a new marriage to support, that could be a factor. Um, great to get your insight <laughs> on what's happening inside the Nationals party room. What does this mean for the Liberals and their coalition? You're writing the book about Scott Morrison, so I imagine you have some insights on how this works for him because he'll now be stretched if he's got a a Nationals party standing up against net zero, but he's also heading towards Glasgow in November where Boris and Joe are going to be pressuring him to go to net zero by 2050. I can't imagine this makes his life any easier. No, not to mention he's in lockdown, so he couldn't get out yesterday as this chaos was unfolding around him. National Party members were, you know, they have independence in these things. They're two separate parties. They agree to do government together, but other than that, they are seen separately, so the Libs don't get a vote. But they were furious with what happened yesterday. 
way. As you say, Scott Morrison is trying to weigh up those two things. He's trying to weigh up how he deals with the international pressure and Australia's global commitments, whilst also trying to keep the forces happy at home. Now, when the Nats come together with the Liberals, they have to sign what's called a coalition agreement. So the old one will get thrown out and a new one will be drawn up. And you'd have to think that in there somewhere, Barnaby Joyce is going to ask for uh, less commitment there um, towards as we go towards Glasgow and, and, and more flexibility with Australia's climate policy. So once again in Australia, we're seeing mm. leaders of parties fall over climate policy. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? One more question on this before we move on to the other headlines, and that's about Barnaby Joyce himself as a personality, as a politician. Obviously, he's had such a checkered past, but he does have real cut through. People know who he is and they have a sense of what he stands for. What do you make of this chapter of his journey? Yeah, look, he said he's changed. Um, he wouldn't want to change too much in the way you're talking about, though. He is considered Australia's best retail politician. And when we say that, we're talking about he's good at selling things. He's a good communicator. He speaks really frankly. You know, he's not a great orator, I guess, but people seem to think there's an authenticity there that they quite like. So I imagine they don't want him to lose that. Some of his past behaviour has been questionable, as we've reported. He has said he's changed. Of course, he um, did have the affair with his staffer. He's since moved in with her and they have two children. And he said his life's changed. Look, there is a bit of concern. Some National Party women yesterday stood up and, and didn't vote for him, even a notable one from a Queensland sort of mining area saying, this is problematic for our party and, and women in Australia won't be happy about this. I tend to agree that there is still a bit of judgment around some of his behaviours. Um, having said that, will that be overcome by his popularity in Queensland? Perhaps. And I guess that was the deal people had to make with themselves. Turning to New South Wales and the Premier Gladys Berejiklian says Sydney's mask rules will stretch beyond Thursday after more cases linked to the Bondi cluster. The existing settings we have in place are likely to continue beyond the initial five days. When you leave your home, at any time of the day, you have to assume that you or somebody in close proximity to you has the virus. Yeah, I'd have to say, Annika, they are pretty um, gentle restrictions compared to what you lived through recently in Melbourne. And continue to live through. We have to wear masks indoors too, and we have no cases. Residents in Sydney's inner and eastern suburbs do currently have to wear masks in indoor public spaces, but that rule was originally meant to be lifted on midnight on Wednesday, but we'll continue. Yeah, so this all comes after two new cases announced yesterday, taking the Bondi cluster to a total of 11. Again, those new cases were known close contacts, so no mystery cases there, which um, is the good news that we're all waiting for each day. Tokyo Olympic organisers have revealed some local fans will be able to attend events, but they won't be over to cheer or talk loudly. Well, Japanese fans are normally pretty well behaved anyway. So <laughs> basically, um, they've announced a joint statement overnight. That's the Japanese government and the Olympic officials. They basically said that fans can attend as long as they don't exceed 50% of a venue's capacity or up to a maximum of 10,000 uh, spectators. Spectators will also have to wear masks when watching events and there'll be a ban on all foreign spectators that's still going to be in place. Here is the head of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, who says he's confident the Games will still go ahead smoothly. So I can only say, uh, here we go, uh, 32, respectively 49 days to go, and uh, we are ready. 
Yeah, very exciting. The 32nd Olympic Games kick off next month. It's going to be a big month for international sport with uh, the Tour de France, Wimbledon and the Olympics. So lots of late night television viewing for Australians. Longtime Sony Music Australia boss Dennis Handlin has stood down effective immediately following a decision at a global level to investigate workplace practices at the company's Australian operation. Yeah, Dennis Hanlon was one of the most powerful men in the Australian music industry. He spent more than 50 years uh, working with Sony until his departure was announced yesterday. He had a big hand in the careers of lots of Aussie artists, including John Farnham, Silverchair, Delta Goodrum, Guy Sebastian, Tones and I and Kid Leroy. And Dennis Hanlon's departure comes after another senior Sony executive, Tony Glover, who was vice president of commercial music, was also let go in April. All right. In just a moment, we're taking you to space. Lift off. A chunk of Chinese rocket has crash-landed in the Indian Ocean. 22 tons of space junk in a rapid and random descent to Earth. Remnants rain down near the Maldives, south of India. Annika, I know that story fascinated you when it was happening last month. The remains of a Chinese rocket crashing towards Earth and we didn't even know where it was going to land. No, in my mind, nobody seemed stressed enough about this as we all (laughs) waited to know who it could potentially kill. Luckily, it didn't. It did land in the ocean, not too far away from the Maldives, as you heard there. But it was pretty scary and opened up a lot of conversations about this new space race and what China's role is in warning people about this sort of stuff. Yeah, so that rocket was part of China's pretty ambitious space program, which has seen it set up its own Tiangong Space Station, which is a rival to the ageing International Space Station. The other bit of space news that's got some attention recently was China landing their own rover on the moon. So last month, they landed this remote control rover on Mars, making it only the second country to do so after the US, which also operates rovers there. And it's pretty hard to do, Tom. Yeah, the Europe space agencies tried to do it twice and failed. So far, it's the Americans and now the Chinese. So today's briefing asks, what is China doing in space? And should we be worried about a new space race? Um, Dr. Rebecca Allen is an astronomer and a researcher at Swinburne Uni's Space Technology and Industry Institute. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Can you start by telling us more about Zhurong, the Chinese rover that's landed on Mars? So this is China's first attempt to put a rover on the surface of Mars. And the entire mission has gone, you know, to be quite clear, flawlessly. So they put an orbiter in Mars and they also then landed this rover. And we know what's so challenging about landing a rover is that the signal is delayed. So everything has to be pre-programmed for that landing to go just right. Now, the technology of the rover isn't quite you know, up to par with NASA's Perseverance, which is also currently on Mars. But there is a specific element of this Chinese mission which could provide some unique science, and that is mostly around Mars's magnetic field. So since the rover has landed, we've seen it do some preliminary kind of tests. We've been getting very limited data back, which is understandable, but we have seen some incredible pictures, including a really cute selfie of the rover. So how long did it take China to achieve this of landing a a rover on Mars? And, And how long was that compared to how long it took the US to do this? For the past probably about 
10 years is what I would say. China's really been ramping up their space program. So we're talking about really in a period probably of about a decade, plus or minus a few years, compared to NASA spending several decades to develop the technology for you know going to the moon, but then interplanetary missions, and of course, beyond to Mars and asteroids. China has gotten to see a lot of this you know uh, success of NASA and the other space agencies. You know, somebody can hand you the blueprints to a rover, but then being able to successfully build a rover and execute that mission perfectly the first time, that's still an incredible achievement. You've touched on it a little bit there, but I was interested to know what other space exploration efforts China are delving into, whether it be satellites or the moon. And also, how much do we actually know about what they're doing? Do they share a lot of their information? Do they tend to be as transparent as, say, other space programs? So certainly we're not seeing the same type of transparency and it's more of a, you know, learning about it when it's ready to launch or when it's successful. So the first one I want to talk about, which has been in the news most recently, is the Chinese Taikonauts, which is the Chinese term for astronaut. So the manned space program, I think, is really one of the most significant because I think that's something that's been underway really for the longest period of time. And that has to do with the development of China's own space station, the Tiangong Space Station. And the development of the space station, to me, it's a really interesting project because it comes at a time which is very important. The International Space Station, which China is not a partner of, is due to retire within the next five to six years. And I think that's really stretching it. And so the fact that China is now building one, they're in the process. So they have the first main capsule there. And we saw the Taikonauts have successfully docked and are now in the process of calibrating that space station for further manned flight and construction, which is due to complete within only about a year. The point really is here is that they've gone on and done this mission by themselves. Who knows who will have really you know access to it in terms of a research laboratory. But I think that's probably one of the main other key missions. And then we have the moon. China still has an operating rover on the far side of the moon, which I would you know, be really interested to see. There's a lot of probably data and science there that hasn't really been made accessible yet. And the key with the moon is everybody's like, why, why do we care about going back to the moon besides the fact that it's just we could do it? Um, and that has to do with harvesting really important resources for prolonged space activity. And when I say resources, I mean the fundamental things like water, which we will need for humans to be there, but we will also need to break down into things like hydrogen fuel. China has also then showed that they're capable of not only sending landers and rovers there, but also doing a sample return mission, which is an extremely complicated mission to coordinate. So those two, I think, are the other two main ones besides the the success with the Mars mission. So it sounds like we're hearing some information about their space program. They were criticised recently after that rocket crashed back into the Indian Ocean and about how much information they're actually giving about that. How dangerous was the prospect of that crash? And is this a concern in the future given how far they're going in their space race? So many nations and individual organizations have access to space 
that we have to be very careful about monitoring and being, like you said, transparent about that activity because the consequences of the, like you were saying, the booster from one of these long March rockets, it could have landed in the Maldives, you know? And so if that happened where it landed in a populated area, you could have had, you know, loss of life and damage to structures. And we have to really think about the launch activity itself if we are trying to launch many more of these missions, but we have a much more crowded space in orbit around Earth with a lot of satellites, that again, that space domain awareness is something which is becoming more and more important. Even the language around it, we talk about a space race and this sort of competition built into that. How would you even raise such a thing to make sure that information is shared and standardised safety measures are in place? Once you actually get into outer space, there is no, we, we love this term that was created, space force that's going to neener, neener, like come up and say, I'm sorry, this is an unregulated thing. Mm. Once it's in space, it's there. And so you've put it out in, into the um, environment. And so we look at organizations like the United Nations, which have been doing an excellent job of having these dialogues around things. But then when it actually comes to enforcement, that is the question. How can you actually enforce it? And I think that is an issue that we're really trying to tackle right now when there's these kind of egos that are so tied to these programs with competition and races. There has to be an understanding um, and regulation, and we don't see that now. And so that's where I think is really one of the biggest dangers of this increased activity. So, Rebecca, when we talk about the space race, we're talking about Russia versus the US or USSR, as it was known back then. That started in the 40s when they were going toe-to-toe on their exploration. Now we're looking at China expanding at a rapid pace. But does it come anywhere close to what the US has done? Do you think we have much to really worry about? And how does this tie into the tensions we see here on Earth, like the posturing around the South China Sea, for example? So all very good points. Yeah. So when we think about the modern space, you know, quote unquote race, I would say that countries like China are racing to establish their presence. NASA is, you know, we're in the marathon. (laughs) NASA has made several achievements. They're showing too through expanded collaboration, you know, with the European Space Agency, with JAXA, the Japanese uh, Space Exploration Program, that by working together, what we can achieve is just phenomenal. That is where the future lies. But you do have countries, you know, it's not just China. You have India, for example, who are also just really poised to have this uh, accelerated activity in space. You have Korea, you have the UAE. So you have other countries which are also now players in this. And so I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, what we define as a modern space race doesn't look the same as it basically being two superpowers saying, okay, this is to show who can be best and who can be first. It's about that greater space exploration. We have to be careful because really when it comes to space, collaboration is key. The kind of geopolitics is going to have to, at some point, be addressed formally. And I think it's sad because I think NASA and Russia really did a good job of, even though the geopolitical stories were were always out there, it was still the Russian Soyuz rockets capsules that were sending astronauts to the space station. So 
science and this, you know, engineering, this, it can prevail beyond these kind of geopolitical tensions. And I think that's where we're, we're at with China is we have to get to a place where we're not talking, you know, posturing and positions and, and, you know, other people's territory, but that space is something different. It's not just any one person's success in the race. It's for the entire world. And how can we translate that to making a better world? That was Dr. Rebecca Allen from the Space Technology and Industry Institute at Swinburne Uni in Victoria. Annika, how much do you think what happens in space and the amount of resource that different countries put into their explorations reflects the geopolitical tensions here on Earth? Well, yeah, Tom, as you touched on there, we saw this during the Cold War when it wasn't a war in the sense of World War One and Two, but it was a battle for supremacy. And that took into account space between Russia and the US. And it's hard to sort of not take that into consideration this time when you look at China and the US on Earth competing for domination and now taking that into space. And you only have to look at Australia, actually. We have sort of a, um, a civilian-led Australian space agency, which the Turnbull government set up. But recently, the government has launched its own military space command. Look, we do come from a long way behind. But why else would you be delving into that area if you didn't think this was not just about getting to space, but about national security? Mm, well, I guess we'll watch this space. Pardon the pun. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we look at the story of the tragic drug overdose of US rapper Mac Miller and the court case that's going on in relation to the men who sold him the drugs. Listener.